Hello and welcome, intrepid listeners. You're listening to Space Mummies from Planet X, an exploration of all things sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And I'm your host, Devin C. Larson. And I want to thank you for the warm responses to Episode 1, your words of encouragement, your ratings on Apple Podcasts. They all mean a great deal to me. I do want to encourage you, please continue to listen, subscribe to the podcast, rate it five stars, do whatever you can to spread the word. I'd like as many ears on this as possible, and the only way I can do that is with your help. I'll have some other ways to connect towards the end of this podcast. Now, I've listened back to the first episode, and I've taken a bunch of notes, and I've listened to suggestions from my girlfriend and producer, Sarah, who, by the way, does a lot behind the scenes. And I'm going to do some tweaks, try and improve my delivery, get rid of some of the ums and uhs to aid in a more pleasant, less disjointed listening experience. Hopefully. This week, I'm back recording in my bedroom. It's early to mid-August, and it is getting warm. I am, I've got the fan off so that it cuts down on background noise, but it's getting hot. It's toasty in here, and I am sweating uh, the sacrifices I make for you, intrepid listener. It's also been so much reading this week, a whirlwind of reading. It's been crazy trying to finish the research for today's podcast. Uh, I have the equivalent of about two other jobs in addition to making the podcast, and fitting in this level of research is is difficult. I managed to do it, though. It's always been my intention to read or watch the source material that I'm going to talk about, but as I said, some weeks is a challenge. This is one of those weeks. As a result, I haven't really seen any new movies, but I do see enough of them on a regular basis with Sarah that I'm considering having a segment in the beginning of these episodes to share a little bit about what I've been watching or reading or playing. For instance, we did manage to start this uh, new TV show on Apple TV Plus called Blackbird. It stars Taron Egerton and has uh, a cameo by Ray Liotta, and it's just excellent acting. The premise in brief is a convict goes undercover into a maximum security prison for the mentally insane to try and elicit a confession out of a serial killer. And if that sounds interesting to you, as it did to me and you have access to Apple TV+, Plus, I recommend you go check that out. It's really good. In addition, I've somehow, on top of the reading that I've done for the research for today, I've also been managing to cram in some reading of the novel Prelude to Foundation in order to prepare for an upcoming episode on the Foundation series. Hopefully that excites you, because hopefully you're something like me and that you love you some Isaac Asimov. I know I do. This week, however, I want you to come with me on a journey to the distant future year of 2019. We're sitting in the aftermath of World War III. Some 30 years ago, a nuclear explosion went off in the heart of Tokyo and kicked off World War III. Society has since rebuilt itself. Tokyo has now become a megacity called Neo-Tokyo. But we're on the downward curve of that. Society is now in decline. Biker gangs roam the streets. Drug use is rampant. And the government continues to rely on the military to crush civil liberties and impose totalitarian rule. Word is, the military has even been developing these new weapons, children with powerful and strange psychic abilities. 
It's a precarious equilibrium, and it's impossible to shake the feeling that we're heading towards something catastrophic. You can feel the pressure building towards an explosion. That's right. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about Katsuhiro Otomo's cyberpunk epic, Akira. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Now, I'm going to do my best to pronounce Akira and all these other character names correctly. It's possible that I may slip. If I do, I beg your pardon. Um, Before we get into proper discussion of Akira, I want to talk more about Katsuhiro Otomo, as we always do. I want to start with the creator, because without the creator and learning a little bit about their background, it's, it's difficult to discuss their work, because without them, there's no work. So let's start with Katsuhiro Otomo. Katsuhiro Otomo was born in Miyagi Prefecture in the Tohoku region of Japan in April 1954. Tohoku, by the way, was said to be a very rural area. So he was kind of isolated a bit as a child from a lot of forms of entertainment. He did, from an early age, really have a love of manga, which, if you're unfamiliar with what that means, manga is Japanese comics. That's all it means. So he was living in a remote region, loved manga, was really only limited to one book a month, and he used that allotment to read a lot of shonen series, which... Shonen means it's a genre targeted towards boys. It tends to be more action, science fiction, adventure, that type of thing. And Otomo was drawn in particular to two series, Astro Boy and Tetsujin 28 Go, both science fiction, both about robots in different ways. And it's said that these series helped to influence his love of sci-fi as well as of sprawling urban metropolises that were the exact opposite, by the way, of the region that he grew up in, which was very rural, as I said. And this fascination, by the way, would continue on throughout his career. To be clear, he's still alive and producing work. He enjoyed drawing from an early age, and at one point combined the two uh, interests when he started to take a look at this manga and was like, I like to draw, I like manga, maybe I can draw manga myself. And he started to do that, but it was a, wasn't until he later came across a how-to-draw-manga book that he is quoted as saying that that's how he learned to draw manga properly. So he continued this through into high school. And during high school, he reportedly, that's where he became first became fascinated by movies, foreign movies, domestic movies, didn't matter. He'd take anything he could get. And this was, again, another lifelong obsession that continues to this day. It was also during high school where he was approached by an editor recruiter from a manga publication who took a look at his work and said, you're actually pretty good at this. Have you ever considered maybe after you graduate high school, moving to Tokyo and doing this professionally, drawing manga professionally, which is exactly what he ended up doing. After high school, he moved to Tokyo, and he pursued a career in the burgeoning manga industry. Now, his very first commission was writing short strips for action comics, which is not the same as the American action comics with Superman. It's a different thing. And this was in October 1973. Now, at the time, he was living in a 
newly developed area just outside of Tokyo, and he was surrounded by a lot of real salt-of-the-earth types. Laborers, bartenders, yakuza, young couples. And it was these types of characters that would continue to show up again and again in his work, and would continue to have a deep influence on him going forward. He was also continually influenced on all kinds of entertainment movies, all kinds of things, foreign and domestic, and that love of Metropolis sprawl, as I mentioned, continued. Uh, apparently, he visited New York City on a honeymoon with his wife and was just taken with the skyline of New York. Now, when it came time to produce his own manga, he was drawn towards sci-fi not only because of his intrinsic love of it from an early age, but also because, in his estimation, most manga at the time in the 70s was either serious, dramatic, or sports, and he felt that sci-fi was an area that was relatively underserved. Now, after doing this for a little bit, at age 25, he spent 5 million yen of his own money that he earned making comics, producing an hour-long short film that he directed himself, which... The process of that allowed him to learn how to make movies. It puts him in the same camp as Quentin Tarantino or other directors similar to that who never went had any formal training in how to make film but learned through doing. And given what Otomo went on to direct, it clearly worked. Now, in 1979, he created a manga called Fireball, which was never finished, but it did introduce a number of the concepts that he would return to in Akira, including supercomputers, psychic powers, a future Japan destroyed by nuclear weapons and reduced to a totalitarian state. We'll talk a little bit more about Fireball in just a second. In 1980 to 1982, he also then went on to create a manga called Domu, which translates to A Child's Dream, and this was his first major hit. It was a horror story about dueling psychics set in a suburban community. It won the Science Fiction Grand Prix in 1983, and this was the first time a manga had ever been awarded that. Now, as I had said, when he started working on manga in the 1970s, the popular style at the time was called Gekiga, which is dramatic pictures, and this is defined by a cinematic art style and more mature themes. Now, Otomo took that style of drawing and applied that towards his science fiction and fantasy stuff. Otomo has always said that he tries to balance fantasy and realism in his art style, and he's also been praised, by the way, as the first manga artist to realistically draw Japanese faces, as opposed to stylized. You think the token big eyes, spiky hair that a lot of people think when they think anime. He went the complete other way. So this realism could also have come from him choosing to use his friends as character models, which is not an uncommon thing for artists to do. He's been cited as being influenced by the French artist Mobius, which Mobius, I recommend you check his work out. He's a master fantasy illustrator who's influenced a number of directors and a number of artists. It's Given what Otomo went on to create, it's not surprising that Mobius might have been one of those influences. The movie The Exorcist Otomo saw in theaters, and it apparently something about it stuck in his brain and continued to have a big influence on Otomo's work going forward, which that's one of the reasons why he started adding horror elements 
into his work, starting with Dilmu. Now, another thing about Otomo is that he frequently puts references to manga authors that he respects in his work. For instance, with Akira, the primary homage was to Tetsujin 28 Go, which I, you may remember from earlier I mentioned, about um, giant robots. For instance, uh, Akira in the comic, his designation is number 28. Other psychic children have numbers associated with other robots in Tetsujin 28. Stuff like that. And what you can tell through all of his manga work is he continues to be very interested in architecture and a high degree of detail and storytelling, including that in his backgrounds. And I, I cannot begin to praise his background work enough. It's, it's really unlike anything else I've, I've seen when it comes to any kind of comic. So after working on a number of manga projects and his own short film, Otomo was approached by the publisher Kodansha to write a series for their young male publication entitled, appropriately, Young Magazine. Doma was sort of a conceptual test run for Akira, because it involved a psychic child. A number of elements from Fireball, such as rebellious youth, were echoed in characters like Kaneda and Tetsuo. Fireball, by the way, is about a band of revolutionaries attempting to rescue the leader's brother who possesses psychic abilities, and if you're familiar at all with Akira, that should sound familiar to you. Fireball, however, lacked an ending, and this left Otomo unsatisfied, so when he was planning out his work on Akira, he was determined to get the ending part right. In fact, he had an ending locked in mind from the very beginning that underwent minimal changes over the course of the manga's long production timeline. He was working on this thing for eight years, and he more or less knew where it was going the entire time. It's very impressive. Another influence on the manga Akira was 2001 A Space Odyssey, the most obvious being the star child at the end of 2001 directly mimics the psychic flesh baby at the end of Akira. And I also find it's interesting that he chose the year 2019, so the manga was first started being created in 1982. And I think it's interesting that he chose 2019 because that's the exact same year that Blade Runner was set in. Seems too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence to me. Now, if you've made it this far, and you've never seen Akira, you're not really familiar with it, with what it is, you're probably asking, what the hell even is this? So, in brief, Akira is about a post-war Neo-Tokyo and a biker gang that roves its streets, led by protagonist Shotaro Kaneda. An accident triggers the development of psychic powers in his friend, Shima Tetsuo. Tetsuo becomes drunk off his own power and opposes Kaneda and the army, as his psychic abilities grow at an alarming rate. We then discover that the military has a secret project designed to develop psychic abilities in children, and that it was this project that created one test subject, a boy named Akira, that awakened to his powers in an immensely destructive fashion similar to a nuclear explosion, and that it was this event that triggered the destruction of Old Tokyo and kick-started World War III. Kaneda becomes mixed up with a group of revolutionaries, including a sort of love interest, K, in order to first attempt to rescue and then kill Tetsuo. Meanwhile, Tetsuo learns about the military's psychic child project and about Akira, and 
decides to break into the facility where they keep Akira frozen in cryostasis and freeze him. And then a short time after this, a traumatic event triggers Akira to go nuclear, which destroys Neo-Tokyo and kills millions. This happens about at about the halfway point in the manga. In the after- aftermath, Tetsuo uses Akira, who himself is just pure power, he has no personality at this point, as the figurehead of a new nation formed in the ruins of Neo-Tokyo, the Great Tokyo Empire. Meanwhile, Kaneda, along with the remnants of a resistance group, and aided by friends and old enemies alike, confronts Tetsuo at the Olympic Stadium construction site, where Tetsuo finally loses control of his power, and his body then undergoes a massive mutation as his flesh can no longer contain the power, and he turns into this pulsating, baby-like creature that distorts and consumes the things around it. With the aid of some psychic children uh, and former test subjects of the military project, Akira is then awakened, and both Tetsuo and Akira unleash their power in twin explosions. Tetsuo's is absorbed by Akira's, and they both vanish, leaving the survivors in the aftermath to claim Neo-Tokyo for themselves. Now, as I mentioned, the manga started being created in 1982, and from 1982 to 1990, it was serialized bi-monthly in Young Magazine. It ended up being 2,000 pages long. 2,000. And yes, I've read them all in the last week. And they're dense, and it's amazing, but 2,000 pages. In Between 1988 and 1995, the comic was released in the U.S. under Marvel's Mature Reader's Epic line. At that point, it was digitally colored by Steve Olaf, who ended up winning an Eisner for it because it was the first ever time a comic had been colored on the computer. When he started, Otomo was under the impression that Akira was going to be a relatively brief project. He only thought it was going to end up being about 10 chapters. Another interesting factoid is the design, the iconic design of Canada's bike changed a number of times, and Otomo freely admits this. It's funny. I was reading the hardcover Akira Club book that comes with the 35th anniversary box set of the manga, and it's got a number of uh, interview bits in there from Otomo, and he's like, straight up, yeah, no, every time I drew, it was a different bike. A primary influence on that bike design, by the way, is the light bikes from Tron. Otomo was known for putting exquisite, great care into the creation of each of the volumes of Akira. It apparently wore out some of the publishing equipment at Kodansha when he was trying to capture some of the perfect colors for the covers of the volumes. Now, after it's released, or during its publication, rather, it received the Kodansha Manga Award multiple times, a Harvey Award, and four Eisners. Some of the comics that would go on to be influenced by Akira would be the comic Descender by Jeff Lemire, which apparently took inspiration from the cinematic nature of Akira. There's also a comic called Motor Crush by Cameron Stewart, Brendan Flesher, and Babs Tarr that's about futuristic motorcycle racing and the crime that accompanies it, which are a direct parallel to the early chapters of Akira. Now, the technical skill displayed by Otomo in the manga is insane. Insane. His line work is masterful, 
He uses dynamic and well-composed shots and manages to expertly capture weight and motion so that the images feel like they're about to leap from the page. This isn't an exaggeration. I've never seen anything quite to that level where it feels like each image is a freeze frame and like a film. You, you can picture what came immediately before and immediately what's going to have, happen after. It, does, it, it feels like one of those live pictures that you can take on iPhones. It, do, it doesn't feel like a static image. There's so much motion in there. In addition, his attention to detail is just mind-boggling. The backgrounds to all of his panels are complex and precise. Everything feels lived in and worn down and tells a story, and he draws every single nut, bolt, window, I-beam, etc. When the city gets destroyed halfway through the run of the manga, he draws every window, every shattered pane of glass, every brick. From a storytelling perspective, I thought that the and I'm not alone in this, the thought and planning he had for the story as a whole is impressive. It's so much more complex and nuanced than I had a chance to get into with my brief overview and in certainly in what's able to be included in the runtime of the film. Um, one thing that I always bring up when I'm talking to people about the Akira manga is that there are two different times when a character psychically projects an image of themselves back in time to warn somebody. And then these moments are paid off hundreds of pages and a number of real-time years of the creator's life later on when you see the scene paid off from the other side. And he does this twice. I've never seen anything else like that. It's also really fun just in general, the escalating level of Tetsuo's psychic powers as he goes from being able to lift things with his mind, to make people's heads explode, to deflect small arms fire and heal himself, to deflect lasers, to put a hole in the damn moon, and then finally the psychic flesh baby thing. And how that escalating power is then matched by the escalating military response where the military starts off, let's let's try small arms fire. Okay, that's not working. What about psychic combat? No. How about laser weapons? No, that's not doing it. What about orbital lasers? Still no. How about bioweapons? Not so much. What about more orbital lasers? It just it's it's very fascinating to watch. In 1986, Otomo made his directorial debut in an episode of Japanese TV for a show called The Labyrinth Story. It was after that, though, in 1988, that he wrote, directed, designed, and was the senior illustrator on the film version of Akira, which was the biggest box office hit of that year. I, I can't think of another time, I, I might be missing something, when, when a manga creator took that intensive directorial control over the adaptation of their work especially since he was still in the process of working on the manga at that time. When Otomo, by the way, first saw the, saw the first rush of the movie, he apparently thought it was a failure and went immediately home to tell his wife, yeah, we kind of screwed up on that one. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were apparently offered the chance to release Akira in the West in 1987, but turned it down because they didn't think it would appeal to Western audiences. It's widely been reported that Akira was 
the most expensive anime ever made at the time. I haven't been able to find a consistent and reliable figure for the cost of it. I've seen 1.1 billion yen, 700 million yen, 900 million yen, over a billion uh, yen. I, I, I think it's probably somewhere over a billion yen. This record, by the way, was broken the very next year by a film called My Neighbor Totoro by Studio Ghibli. The film is an incredible synthesis of the manga. It draws from multiple parts of the story and combines them all into one movie somehow. I, I can't stress enough how epic the manga is. Just the, it, There's so many different storylines going on, and even to fit them into a, what is it, like two and a half hour movie, I don't know how they do it, but he's able to do it. There are various elements that you can compare to other films like Rebel Without a Cause, Videodrome, Blade Runner, 2001 A Space Odyssey, E.T., A Clockwork Orange. Now, the movie manages to capture most of the story in a remixed fashion, but it, it's impossible to carry all of the nuance over. The manga is broken into several arcs. The movie largely tracks the events from parts 1 through 3, at which point in the manga, Akira destroys Neo-Tokyo. This occurs at the conclusion of the movie. The second half of the manga deals with post-apocalyptic Neo-Tokyo, where survivors have become either bandits or refugees. Naturally, much more space and significance is given to certain characters in the manga. Nezu, the rat-faced politician in the film, in the manga, he tries to claim Akira for himself and then becomes a villain at one point that the heroes and the military and the cult have to defeat. He is ultimately responsible, by the way, for triggering the reaction in Akira that causes Akira's awakening and the destruction of Neo-Tokyo and therefore the death of millions, so good job, Nezu. There are a number of characters like uh, Chiyoko, which is Kei's bodyguard. Chiyoko's awesome in the manga, She's this um, large, uh, muscly woman that kicks ass, and she's just absent from the film, unfortunately. I mean, there, there were uh, several characters that had to be cut out in that fashion. Or, for instance, there's Joker, who's the leader of the clown biker gang. He does appear in a uh, bit part in the beginning of the movie, but in the manga version, he comes back again towards the end of the manga and is a much more significant presence. Um, characters like these, they're either missing or a footnote in the film. However, the character that got the most reduced in significance and is just completely sidelined in the movie is the leader of the cult, Lady Miyoko. She's one of the primary characters in the second half of the manga because she leads the opposite force from Tetsuo's Great Tokyo Empire, and is responsible for gathering the various psychics and key people to counter Tetsuo and Akira. She's a huge character. She's also, by the way, a former test psychic child test subject, like the others, um, who escaped at one point. And yeah, you can recognize her in the movie. She's the woman that leads the cult that has the circular dark sunglasses and then her hair in a big bun. Um... She's just kind of like a bit part in the movie, huge character in the manga. So the movie was eventually released in the U.S. in 1988 in art house cinemas, and it gained a huge cult following. 
and was released on video and became so popular that it led to the anime boom of the early 90s in the U.S. Without Akira, I, I don't think we'd have anime in quite the same way and with quite the same reach that it has today. Various films like Midnight Special, Inception, Chronicle, Looper, they all draw elements from Akira. Stranger Things, you may have heard of it, mirrors the structure of Akira significantly. For instance, a psychic child is trained by the government, Eleven, to use her psychic powers as a weapon. The Duffer brothers have cited Akira as a direct influence. The Matrix also has elements that draw from Akira, psychic kids, a dystopic urban landscape. Although that film has a more direct connection to another anime classic that I will undoubtedly cover on the podcast at some point, Ghost in the Shell. Even most recently, and this has been making the rounds on social media the other day, uh, in Nope, Jordan Peele's Nope that I covered on last episode, towards the end of that film, there's this, he's able to recreate uh, in real life the infamous Canada bike slide that happens towards the beginning of Akira, where Canada comes to this really cool sliding stop from the side, uh, leaning over all crazy. And Peel included that reference in the movie Nope. Kanye West has spoken a number of times of his love of the film and has even based his music video for the song Stronger on the storyline of Akira. Now, after this, Otomo went on to create a, an anthology movie called Memories in 1995. I did see this. Consisting of three experimental shorts, one of which he personally directed. At the time, it was novel because not a lot of anime were integrating CG with their hand-drawn artwork. It wasn't a common practice at the time, but that's one of the things that I remember at least his segment in Memories that he directed had in there. He returned to this technique again later when he created the movie Steam Boy, which was again, the, at the time, the most expensive anime. 2.4 billion yen. It, it was a adventure tale set in... Industrial Revolution, uh, Great Britain, and was all steampunk to uh, Akira's cyberpunk. Um, I I did see this once. I I kind of have to go back and watch it again. I want to. But it didn't quite... It didn't quite capture the public imagination in the same way that Akira did. Uh, To be fair, what could? Director Satoshi Kon... By the way, um, R.A.P., who directed such films as Perfect Blue, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paprika, worked as Otomo's assistant in both manga and film and cited both Akira and Domu as influences. Now, you may have heard, for a number of years, there was supposedly a live-action version of Akira in pre-production. Leonardo DiCaprio was attached at one point, and more recently, director Taika Waititi took over the state of whatever it is. And it's difficult to tell whether or not that, that if if that project's entirely on hiatus or if it's canceled or what, um, YTT was speaking about the live action Akira film as recently as last year. So it might still be on who knows. Um, I can't help but imagine that part of the difficulty in addition to just the expense, probably is I, I imagine a number of the fans uh, of the work are 
worried about having a similar situation to the live action ghost in the shell with Scarlett Johansson, where they basically whitewashed all the characters in that film. And thankfully, if this current version directed by YTT ends up happening, it sounds like he's got in mind to cast all Asian actors, which seems appropriate. So that's kind of one hurdle cleared, I guess. Uh, as for Otomo, he's back to directing again. He has an upcoming film adaptation of one of his mangas called Orbital Era. And it's also been announced that Otomo will be directing a sequel series to Akira and that that project will be incorporating the entire manga storyline. So when and where that happens, that'll be fascinating if that comes out. Now, Akira is a mixture of the various elements that define Otomo's other works. Psychic powers, urban destruction, militarism. And as I mentioned at the top, it takes a look at a number of salt-of-the-earth characters, just regular, ordinary people that make up a society, and how those people are the victims of forces beyond them that care nothing for them. New Tokyo has been rebuilt from the bombings in 1982, but it's in a state of decline because the only social services that seem to get funding are the military and policing, or institutions like the reform school that care nothing for the children they serve beyond their usefulness to society. This leads to the drug use, which is way more prevalent and apparent in the manga version, where first it's amphetamines and then later psychic boosting pills. And this is this drug use is rampant as one of the only forms of escape some of these people have. Another would be taking to the streets as a motorcycle gang that answers to no one. The resistance is no better than any of these institutions. It's as corrupt as any of them. For instance, frontline soldiers like Ryu and Kei, they're in it for noble reasons. But the people behind the scenes like Nezu, they only want power. We see over the course of the manga how characters change allegiances and how ordinary people react to disastrous circumstances and, in general, what it does to society when order breaks down. There's also a healthy dose at the end of the movie and the manga of body horror when Tetsuo starts mutating into the psychic flesh baby. Body horror, by the way, is a subgenre of horror that focuses on the fear of losing control over the body through disease, manipulation, mutation, distortion, and it's meant to evoke a physical and psychological disgust. Akira is a fascinating story, well told, with a level of craft I just can't begin to compare to anything else. It's my hands-down favorite comic, of any kind, any variety. And it's a movie that exploded onto the scene and helped anime break into the West. It's a cultural phenomenon that has influenced an untold number of people and projects, and it still reverberates to this day. As I said, a, the widespread celebration of anime and manga in the West might not have happened at all if Akira didn't make people take the art form seriously. If you haven't seen it recently, I recommend you go track it down online. I believe Hulu has it. And give it a rewatch. It's a truly impressive film. Or, if you can, go read the manga. Kodansha, as I mentioned, released a 35th anniversary box collection a few years back. It's not cheap, to be fair. That lovingly reprints the entire thing in hardcover format. And that's Akira. I want to thank you for listening to episode two. So on Instagram and Twitter, I'm Killer Voice Guy, all one word. And on those platforms, the podcast is Space Mummies. I'd ask that you follow both of those accounts on both of those platforms, please. 
I also have Facebook pages for Killer Voice Studios and Space Mummies from Planet X as well. Please track those down and like them. The more people that can follow and promote the podcast and my professional account, the wider the reach all of this will have, and that will just help me produce a better show. Additionally, if you have suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover on a future episode, feel free to DM me and I'll be happy to consider it. Now, what are we doing next time? Well, hmm. How about we check back here in two weeks, and why don't I tell you everything you need to know about House Targaryen so that you're prepared for the upcoming HBO show House of the Dragon? How's that sound? Good? Okay, I'll see you then. <laughs>